Three, two, one, and we're back. It's January the 17th, and this is our Sunday podcast. Tim and Julie Harris, Real Estate Coaching Radio on Sunday. On Sunday, it's a different theme. And Julie Julie has a friendly warning for all of you, especially first-time listeners to our Sunday show. Yes, friendly warning, not our normal weekly show. During the week, we bring you all kinds of real estate coaching topics, things to help you out with your business. And hopefully we do on this Sunday show as well. But this is more of, let's just say, fun for us, variety show, interesting things, sometimes real estate, sometimes not, um, that are just interesting to us to expand our minds and hopefully expand yours right along with us. Yep. And so what we do, and Julie and I do this intentionally, and I'll tell you the reason we do this is, first of all, because we like to keep ourselves uh, intellectually curious. We like to be learners about um, just everything. We don't, whatever the topic is, Julie and I want to research it and understand it. And we do that just to make it so that we're never get, becoming complacent in our ability to learn new things. It's fascinating the older we get, well, you know, it can happen with young people too, but mostly the older you get, the more you start having a closed mind. You just constantly are thinking and reading everything, you know, th- the same thing over and over and over again. Um, it's like, uh, you know, perpetual Groundhog Day. And when you start allowing that type of, uh, you know, deterioration of your ability to think cognitively about a bunch of different topics, then you actually lose your edge. You get a little dumb, daft. And a lot of people, or at least, you know, medical professionals will advise that they think Alzheimer's is, um, can be uh, triggered uh, more readily for people that aren't constantly keeping their minds sharp. Um, yeah, so there you go. Lots of other reasons, but the main one is is because Julie and I like to compete to find the craziest stories <laughs> to try to shock each other, but I'll still try to shock you. And I have to say, Julie's been at this uh, overtime, and I think she thinks she won today, so we're going to find out. It's entirely possible. So that is what we do today. We're going to just share with you headlines that she and I grabbed that we thought you guys would like, and at the same time, we're entertaining us. Yes, and in no <laughs> particular order or relationship to each story. So no. don't, don't try and follow a storyline here. No, and it's very <laughs> virtually nothing to do with real estate. We do that intentionally, again, because we're trying to take a sidestep from the normal patterns of thinking. Hopefully, all of you guys can appreciate that. But at the very least, I think some of these shows, especially if you're a little off your rocker wall, <laughs> like my lovely wife and I are, you will appreciate these topics. And the first story is uh, one that Mrs. Harris has discovered, which I have to say is absolutely bizarre. Yes. Okay. So the headline is, why Dippin' Dots? Hold on a second. Yes? So I changed your mic, so oh. you don't need to have it so close. Okay. And you don't need How's to talk that? so loud. No, you can have it right here. Just don't, you don't need to project okay. so much. Gotcha. Yeah. So why Dippin' Dots might have a place in the COVID-19 vaccine distribution plan. I've never had Dippin' Dots before, but I've seen them around, you know, like ice cream carts and stuff. I, it's I like absolute... frozen pelleted ice cream. Oh, is got it. it. Sounds is. good. And it comes in all kinds of colors. And lucky for us, Zoe doesn't know about it yet. So the brand operates a line, a line of ultra-cold freezers that could keep the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine at the appropriate temperature. So here's why that's important. The coronavirus vaccines are on their way, but the biotech vaccine, so far the only option that has been approved in the United States, has to be stored at negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit. That's that, pretty darn cold. That's got to feel good when they're injecting into you. <laughs> right. Uh, that's an incredibly cold temperature, even for vaccines, and has led to concerns that even as the vaccine is distributed, many places may not have the facilities to actually store it. So a potential answer, first reported by PopSci, uh, comes from an unlikely source, Dippin' Dots, because that company manufactures the pelletized ice cream that operates freezers that get as cold as minus 122 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Probably not what Dippin' Dots had in mind when they were describing themselves as the ice cream of the future. So the gist of it is basically, and I did hear about this, and they're fearful that the um, vaccine, I actually remember, um, what was it, last Sunday or the Sunday before that, Mm -hmm. they were fearful that the vaccine itself, even when distributed, uh, even when, you know, put into people's bodies, was going to be ineffective because of the fact that it wasn't, it was kept at room temperature or whatever. It wasn't yeah, actually. the storage is the problem. The storage is the problem. Yeah. And so now you're also hearing uh, things come out that some people are getting the vaccine and then they're still getting coronavirus, mm-hmm. you know, which is fascinating because it must have been probably because the vaccine itself Possibly. wasn't. Yes. Deteriorating. Wasn't, right. So it's kind of so, an interesting story. Yes. But I, you know what? Also I, a story of versatility for Dippin' Dots and, you know. Like maybe you end up doing something that you never cooked up when you were creating that business. Mm, Just flexibility. But you know what? I can do better than that story. <laughs> All right, lay it on me. All right, me. so is this one yours, this next one? Uh, I think so. All right, well, we'll let well, you Well, it's re- okay. Like no, I no, said, no, no. no particular order. You, you can do this one too, and uh, because this one's good because I have an Elon Musk story too. Okay. E- Elon Musk is definitely the my- the modern-day Iron Man meets uh, Da Vinci. Definitely. Meets I don't even know what. I'm not sure. But uh, I'll tell you my story, though. I'll just summarize okay. it into this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hold on, let me close this window. He is now officially the world's richest man. I read that. I can't. For, yeah. I can't remember who he surpassed, but it's somebody. Jeff Bezos. Is it Bezos? Yeah. yeah. So he is worth a hundred. Like, and I'll just read the headlines when we get to that uh, mm-hmm. article. But the gist of it is now he's the world's richest man, and it's kind of funny when you think about the amount of wealth that he's accumulated in relatively short period of time. Like, I'll get to it, but just in like last twelve months, it's like yeah. hundred and sixty-two billion. It's something That's just insane. But anyway, read this one. This one's a good story. Yes. Okay. So SpaceX is preparing to launch the latest prototype of its Starship spacecraft a system that could one day carry humans to Mars. The new prototype is called number, Serial Number 9, or SN9, and uh, is set to rocket tens of thousands of feet in the air. Then it belly flops towards the ground, refires its engines to flip up le- upright and then land. Like, hold on. Who Stop. even hooks that up? No, but hold on. So yeah. this is the thing that he's expecting. Am I yeah. reading this right? Yeah. All right, so. Okay, no, I, I'm not getting in that. No. That's what I'm saying. No, so he's that, a- That's for him. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's literally what he's saying. So this is the spaceship that he thinks that people are going to get on while it's doing yeah. all this aerobatics going at ridiculously high speeds. Yeah. Huh, maybe it's not as smart so, as we thought he was. Well, the first one did crash and burn. So there's that. It's a good thing he has that much money because, you know, he might have to go and make another one. Um, they do have permission to launch SN9 as soon as Monday, and there will be live feeds. I think it's going to be uh, on YouTube and stuff like that. So that might be an interesting thing just to see. Okay, so this is SN9, which we should assume there were eight prior. <laughs> right. Okay, and, and you know, you just told me one crashed and burned. Yeah. We're still missing the whereabouts. I think number whereab- eight did. I, different prototypes, I guess. We're still missing the whereabouts of sep- one through seven. Yeah. So. Huh. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> I just thought it was an interesting thing to I don't think I'm the, keep an eye on. You know, it's funny when he was talking about going to Mars, everyone, it's like all these, uh, you know, big thinker types, they always talk about going to Mars and, and people are really, why, what the hell, why are you wanting to go to Mars? You know, why is it that we're uh, so focused on exploration of different, um, you know, planets and all the rest of it? Why don't we just take care of the one we've got? Yeah. But really what it is at the end of the day, it's an overpopulation problem. I mean, you don't call it a problem if you'd like, mm-hmm. but in essence, we're, the, the fear ultimately isn't really even the environment or, you know, people with just doing stupid things. It's really the essence of it is, is that, that people are, you know, recreating themselves and making more babies and more humans. And oh, eventually it's going to be a scarcity of land and resources problem. That's the gist behind mm-hmm. most of these people wanting to explore. Um, yeah. You know, and different... I think, I mean, it is interesting from an engineering standpoint that we can think this stuff up and make it work. I, my favorite quote from Elon about this was that he wants to die on Mars, just not on impact. <laughs> so, 
Well, yeah. so along those lines, though, this is a this is fascinating to me. Elon in general is fascinating to me, mm-hmm. but this whole space exploration thing, because really, if you think about it, other than the shuttles through the '80s, and you know, there there wasn't really any sort of um, exploration that was even going on. Yeah, and it sort of like came. It, it went and it's it's this sort of I mean almost decades long. You know, tr- ending of a trend. So in the '60s, it was going to the moon, and then we just sort of went. You well, know, the Challenger there... crash kind of put the kibosh on that. That I'm was in '85 sh- when we were in high school. Right, but there were other crashes too. And yeah. I'm not, sh- you yeah. know, I'm not sure that was the reason why. I just think people they they stopped thinking big. They stopped mm-hmm. focusing, you know, into something that's um, truly extraordinary. Because you're like, for example, I didn't put the story up, but I was going to. But they're about to land whoever the they is, right? About mm-hmm. to land a um, satellite on an asteroid. Well, that's. Right. Interesting. Now, why would you want to land a satellite on well, an asteroid? Because asteroids are going to have the, uh, types of you know minerals and rocks and all. You can mine it basically, um, and so there's a lot of incredibly rare earth elements that you can find on asteroids that you can't find here on the planet Earth. Then those elements themselves are actually necessary to create the types of technology that's necessary to do yeah. some of these you know ridiculous things that people like Elon Musk can dream of. Yeah, I saw that asteroid story, and I I thought it was interesting that. Because of what you said, the minerals and the different um, precious things that are on those, that you can actually val quote put a valuation on an asteroid. Yeah, I know. Because I, I think the headline was like worth whatever 180 billion or something like that. And I'm like, well, how do you come up with comps for that? Okay, so now I'm, this is a so. Tim story. So you guys are gonna right. have to vote who basically Morning. comes with the best stories. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna dust you on this one. All right, you didn't see it. this one. I didn't send it to you. Okay, oh, you've got. Now, see, that's that's not. Yeah, I'm not playing fair. Oh no, I I got that one too. I Did just you? had a different headline. Oh, mm-hmm. all right. Well, go ahead and read it. That's okay. We can call it a draw. <laughs> Ignore the fat, ugly man on the left side of your yeah. margin. Um, okay. So the CIA has released a large cache of files involving unidentified flying objects, otherwise known as UFOs. Uh, let's see. And also known as unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs, following the Freedom of Information Act request by podcaster John Greenwald Jr., Greenwald operates a website called The Black Vault, where he has made those files available and searchable in PDF format. That's interesting. There's so much blacked out on these files. I I don't know what you can garner from it. Or exactly what's searchable, considering they're all basically blacked out. But that's interesting. If you go in to read about this, so this is, I think it's only declassified since the 80s, so it doesn't have... Like some of the uh, Roswell information. Right. So well, keep it, reading. But it, it's keep. a bucket of it. The release comes less than six months before the government's official UFO report, which was inserted into the COVID-19 omnibus bill. Omnibus. What? Like how? Okay, I'm really going to find it there. Hold on. Did it really say that? Okay, so the government's official UFO report oh, was inserted gosh. into the COVID-19 omnibus bill. Okay, so that kind of makes you wonder even more what's in it, that they slid it into a COVID bill, right? Because nobody's going to look for it there. Around, uh, let's see, um, (laughs) includes reports that date back to the 80s, according to Greenwald, who scanned everything by hand in order to create searchable PDFs. Around 20 years ago, I had fought for years to get additional UFO records released from the CIA, he told Motherboard on an email. It was like pulling teeth. I went around and around with them to try and do so. Finally achieving it, I received a large box of a couple thousand pages, and I had to scan them in one page at a time. Uh, so the CIA has made it incredibly difficult to use their records in a reasonable manner, and that's why they're, he's trying to searchize it, I guess. So there you go. Uh, speaking of which, UFO sightings in New York City have increased by 31% over 2019. We can only imagine that this is because people are stuck at home looking at the sky. <laughs> Nothing else to do. <laughs> so, All right, so let me. Uh, here's another one I found. Let me see. find it. Now, this one is good. 
Uh, okay, here you go. Yeah, that's a good one. Did you read this one too? I got part way through it. You did. You found that I didn't no, send no, this to you. you. Yeah, you did. Oh, I did. Okay, this one's really interesting. Maybe I scanned it. So, are, so are we proving that what we told you uh, at the start of the today's podcast about the warning? We are validating that this is not a normal <laughs> podcast for us, right? No, that's and right. hopefully, we're having now. We're not, you know, conspiracy theorists or. You know, we don't. We aren't watching alien movies or looking at the stars for strange lights. The Julie We're not obsessing on this stuff. Though Julie claims she did see a UFO once. I, I totally saw a UFO. I once. think it was a kid playing with the drone because I mm. saw the same thing. I don't think so. All anyway, right. that's, that's okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. The Milky Way is probably full of dead alien civilizations. Say physicists. Humans have spent centuries wondering if there's other intelligent life among us in the galaxy, and decades actively searching for it. It turns out the Milky Way may have once been full of bustling alien civilizations, but they're all dead now. That is the depressing finding of a new study published in the AIR XIV database last month. The paper, which is a preprint and awaiting peer review, amounts to an update to the Drake equation, a probabilistic model used to estimate the number of extraterrestrial civilizations in the Milky Way. Do you remember the Drake equation? Do you know what it is? I remember watching a movie about that, but I couldn't. The essence of it is basically based on the, uh, the essentially the elements that they're able to identify that are the that are making up some of the stars and the distant planets because they could do that with uh, you know different telescopes and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So they can surmise that there's enough possibility that there's um, you know essentially all life needs water, right? And so they can figure out which planets had water or which planets have water. And then the Drake equation basically goes and says, well, if this percent has it and this, you know, Probably bastion. Indeed. Right. That's all it is. It's mm -hmm. basically. But it's, it's interesting, though. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see where to start back up in here. Using modern astronomy and statistical modeling techniques, a team of physicists from the California Institute of Technology were able to identify different factors that would point to the potential existence of extraterrestrial life. Using research conducted in recent years, driven largely by discoveries made possible to the Hubble Space Telescope, and the Kepler Space Telescope, the scientists were able to examine conditions within the galaxy that could result in alien civilizations. That includes factors like sun-like stars near Earth-like planets. That makes sense. That's what I just said, basically. Uh, frequency of supernovas, you know, yeah. things that are so, perhaps evidence of life or previous life. So basically, listeners, this is fascinating because there's only so many places, so many real planets on the, on the solar system in our galaxy, right, where there could be possibility of life because it's called the, you know, Earth is considered to be like a Goldilocks planet. That's what it's you know, referred to as by astronomers and physicists. Because we're the perfect distance from the moon. We're the perfect distance from the sun. We don't have anything that's too close to us. And so we can, you know, basically life can exist here. Well, if the same rules apply to life on other planets, which they're assuming it does, then you're looking at essentially only really a handful of places um, where there could possibly be uh, other forms of life. Now, the theory, going back to Mars, ironically enough, was there used to be water on Mars and used to be life on Mars, and they're thinking that there actually might be existing life on Mars subterranean, so in the ground. Now, does that mean Elon wants to go mining for Martians? I probably. I mean, let's just be honest. Why not? Probably with the Why hell. Are there? Yeah, really. He's going to announce some new IPO for Martian mining. Nobody would be surprised. No, they'd be like, yeah, all right, so I'll buy some. It's probably going to go up. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. exactly. We'll be trading in underground Martian soon. <laughs> exactly. Well, so that's But fascinating. it's interesting to follow this it, stuff. It's totally fascinating. And so you can go through here, but get to the gist of it because um, yeah, this is the, the hard... Remember, this article is basically about how they're believing there were alien, um, essentially, civilizations or alien species. Okay. 
Yeah. So researchers found that the probability for intelligent life hit its highest point about 8 billion years be- after the Milky Way was formed and about 13,000 light years from the center of the galaxy. The Earth occupies a space that's about 25,000 light years from that central point and didn't crop up until about 13 and a half billion years after the Milky Way formed. That means humans came along pretty late in the game missing out on that peak point for intelligent civilization. It also means that there may be other life behind us that's just getting started. That leaves open the potential for discovering intelligent life at some point, not just life that came before us. The research suggests that those civilizations that may have gained their smarts billions of years before we were even a twinkle in the eye of the universe probably destroyed themselves long ago. The model suggests that over time, the probability for intelligent life to completely eradicate itself increases the longer it's around. Hard to say what exactly doomed those civilizations, but one doesn't have to look too far from our own circumstances to imagine political. all that. You know, I can see where it's going with yeah, that. Yeah, they get, get political um, really quick. But that's the gist of it, and I think yeah. that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. But it's a theory. These are all just interesting theories. And again, how are, you, how are you feeling listening to what Julie and I are talking about, and especially if you're a normal listener listening to what we normally talk about? Um, because the whole thing is it expands your thinking. It sort of takes you out of, at least when Julie and I are sharing these stories with each other, you know, it takes you out of your normal pattern of thinking. It forces you to think bigger. It forces you to realize that maybe as much as your challenges oh, and problems are. That, that one and that one. Okay, but there's another one in here where I'm trying to find it where it was actually talking about um, actual alien spaceships. So we can stay on this alien know. theme. So really scare off any people that were on the fence about listening to us. <laughs> this, this, this will put this them, this will knock them out. Uh, this might be it, but I'll tell, I'll okay. share the other one in a second, but go ahead. Okay, is there a UFO in Cape Hatteras? Viral video sparks debate of mysterious flying object. It is Alien Day, isn't it? Okay, so days before the CIA released. Well, let's, yeah. let's hover there. Okay. So this only makes sense. Mm-hmm. You and I theorized, right? <laughs> right? We did in the spring yeah. of 2020 mm-hmm. that we there was – actually, it's probably – yeah, it was April, you know, May, somewhere in there – that there was going to be a year full of craziness. And you and I actually made a list. And a lot of the things that actually happened weren't even on our list. We weren't yeah. creative enough. For example, flying freaking snakes or wherever the hell it was. We did a story on Sunday show. Right. But like the one thing that we didn't quite get to on our list, mm-hmm. aliens. Aliens. So and now, and now we're getting caught up. We're seeing more alien stories come out. And we, we now, are. granted, we do search for these just for the fun of searching for them. But it is funny to me that you're seeing essentially more and more information. Yeah. Almost like it's... Current information. This right. isn't like digging up the old stuff, right? So the, the theory the mm-hmm. theory is, and this is getting on in the you know, head of our skis and really probably scaring some of you off as I say this. <laughs> but the theory is, is that they, essentially the CIA and whatnot has, knows that there's alien civilizations, know that they've been visiting us, trying to you know basically keep the information from going public. And now they're going to through these alternative news channels, most of which is where we got this information, yeah. they're going to start leaking out this information to prepare people for the announcement. And it was fascinating that the Pope, mm-hmm. I think it was the modern Pope or the Pope prior, yeah. he actually said as much as and, and essentially say that, you know, probably we're going to discover that yeah. there's aliens visiting us. I mean, the Pope said that. I know. It was nuts, right? Yeah, well, he probably knows something. Well, I, I, I would guess in one of those Illuminati so. meetings where those people go to. <laughs> that's where it all comes out. I don't out. know. I mean. Illuminati mastermind. That's where it happens. Oh, man. We need to do that. <laughs> there's, an idea. The- there's an idea in there somewhere. <laughs> okay. So according to the regional newspaper, the News and Observer, photographer Wes Snyder captures what appears to be a mysterious object in the night sky. Yeah, the object was visible for just under three minutes total, so I doubt it's a meteor or a shooting star, as those typically only last a few seconds, Snyder posted on YouTube. And it is a pretty impressive video, I have to say. Judging by the video, the object appears to have corners. Here's the full video 
that's on you can probably yeah find you can it on find it on YouTube. YouTube. The title of the video on YouTube is "What is flying? What is this flying object?" Question 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 mark. So you guys can find yes. it yourselves. Uh, he spent a night at Cape Hatteras Lighthouse shooting time-lapse photos to create an upcoming video. While I was looking through my footage, I realized there was something in the video that I could not explain. He wrote on Facebook, it's much larger than your typical plane appears and is moving way faster than clouds. Yeah. So, I mean, you can keep on reading the details, but that's the gist of it. All right. So the other story was, do you remember, this was from earlier last year, and I don't think actually I saved it, unfortunately, but I'll give you the gist of it. So do you remember that story about that long, um, it was like cigar-shaped UFO uh-huh. that was kind of tumbling over? We, we Again, mm-hmm. we kind of made fun of it on this uh, Sunday podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, now there's physicists that have been, in essence have come out and, and concluded in their professional opinions that that absolutely was an intergalactical uh, spaceship. Wow. And that they've had this all this time to uh, explore and study what was its propulsion and even though the initial thought was it was somehow being like propelled by like freaking a release of just some sort of an uh, inert gas or something, that they've since studied it and realized that the gas was only being released as uh, almost like, um, you know, basically it was being released to keep their propulsion going. It wasn't just being released randomly. Mm-hmm. So like if you imagine if you let, if you, have, if you have an air, a balloon and an air, yeah, air in a balloon or whatever, mm-hmm. and you let off the balloon, it just flops around all over yeah. the place. Well, imagine if you let the air out of the balloon, and the balloon only just basically let the air out when it was trying to basically go in a particular direction. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what they essentially discovered with this, you know, UFO. And the other crazy thing about that mm-hmm. is they're now able through the different satellites that they got from imagery they got from different countries, not just Hubble. Mm-hmm. They're actually able to see that it came in from another galaxy. Mm-hmm. It went around, took a trip around the sun, and then that's it left. Crazy. Yeah, I was wondering where it is now. Yeah, it left, yeah. split, went down. No, no. I just figured it out. What? Elon Musk. Elon is behind this. For Elon sure. did it. There it is. Yes. Well, I'm going to give a little real estate story to this because in I would call this in news of aspirational pricing and price reductions, <laughs> we have LA's famed Oak Alwood. Sorry, Alwood Estate sold for almost a hundred million less than it was once asking. Now I, I, this I, is a pretty cool house. We honestly do not have a uh, price change script that would help that, with that no, one. No, I'm out. Once one of the highest price homes on the market with a whopping 180 million dollar asking price. The L.A. mega mansion, known as Alwood, has sold for a heavily discounted $88 million. So from $180 to $88, that's a pretty significant price reduction. I wonder how many times that puppy expired. No, I was just thinking the buyer still <laughs> thinks he got a deal because he got $100 million off. I know, right? He but probably he, forgot that he paid still almost $100 million. Yeah. So, but anyway. <laughs> Let's see. Uh Dubbed the crown jewel of Holmby Hills, the sale price is some $92 million less than the estate was shopped around for when it emerged on the market in 2017. Has 10 private acres on three lots. It's the largest cam, uh, compound in Holmby Hills, according to the listing with Tomer Friedman of. Yeah. So uh, my thought on this was homes that. Exp- I mean, that was 2017. This is this sold right before Christmas 2020. Yeah. So for those of you who are thinking about expired hunting, yes, stuff does actually end up selling sometimes for a lot less price. That's what I thought when I looked it up. Well, also, another good point here is that it was an older expired, and wouldn't it have been hilarious if the guy actually got that listing from hunting expireds? Seriously. I bet he did. I bet he did, too. Yeah, I mean, that would yeah. be... Can you imagine? He's you know sitting down to make his expired <laughs> calls in the morning. You see that on the he, hot sheet? Well, I mean, it's one of the things we teach our coaching clients is when you're calling expireds, the Start last thing the you account. do is you don't look at the price. No. Yeah, because if you look at the price, you're going to freak yourself out. Um, you look it, for motivation. And it, clearly that, you know, 
So when you're calling in the list for expired, you don't just hunt and peck the ones that are closest to you or the price ranges that are most familiar. You just start from the top and you yeah. call all the way down. And it's the same script and same process every time you make a contact. And so when you're talking, to, you might be very well setting an appointment with a you know $88 million house and not even realize until the appointment's set. Mm-hmm. And then the next call you're going to make, you're going to be setting an appointment with a $400,000 house. Same yep. script, same system, same everything. So it's kind of fascinating. I bet you that is how that listing was obtained. And your job's the same every time. Accomplish what the seller needs. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, Let's see. Uh, as As a result of COVID, people are building these decked out sheds, essentially. They really shouldn't be called sheds at a certain point, but... Uh, there's there's quite a few companies that are arising to make like home office space or additional structures in your backyard, um, and it gives some examples of anywhere between like fifty and a hundred thousand if you've got air conditioning and you've got your electric setup. Um, there's something called Kit House. Uh, Kit House. Kit House. K I T H A U S. Uh, that starts at forty five thousand. You add heating and air conditioning for five grand. You can landscape it up. Security cameras. And end up, uh, the, the story was that this person that, that did that, she made it into a, a house house. She had been paying 4500 a month in a lease and ended up creating this as her alternative uh, house. Yeah, but so, so here, here's, the, interesting. here's the flip side to these, these little you know, cottage deals. Because I researched this before, and we've written articles on our main website, mm-hmm. timandjulieharris.com, about these. I think innovatively, they're amazing. Yeah. And a lot of times, these get delivered basically as kits, and you have, mm-hmm. a, you know, they're usually based in steel and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But they are they are incredibly expensive cost per square foot. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. if you figure out the cost per square, because they're not foot, very big. Right. She's talking about like the base cost. I bet you she's got a hundred grand in that she, thing. She does. If yeah. she does, oh there I you go. I didn't read it. And then how many square feet is it? Um, I don't know if it said that. Yeah, it's. I'm sure, but, but it can't be much. And I mean, then, and then she thinks, shed. and she says, I'm reading in this article that she thinks it increased her appraisal value by a hundred grand. No way. No way. So. How are you going to get an appraisal appraiser to increase the value of your property just because you basically have a shed on it? I know. And there, are people getting real permits to stock that? Now, in their I'm backyard? asking you that for my. This is with I have you no, know, I, three I, brokers' I, licenses yeah. and whatnot. So you explain to me how that would uh, increase the appraisal by a hundred thousand dollars? I don't think so. I, how's that? That um, would even happen. I mean, I think you could probably jimmy with some cost per square foot and call it a fourth bedroom instead of a three it, bedroom. It's not attached, though. You'd really have to work it because yeah. it, it's essentially an outbuilding, and outbuildings aren't valued obviously the same as a regular house. And many of these so places, and I'll tell you what many of these guys are doing, and it's crafty. Is they never actually it's these, not on a foundation? Not on a foundation because mm-hmm. if it's not on a foundation, if it's seen as a um, you know essentially a mobile thing like a mobile house right. or it's like Julie said it's not on a foundation, then it doesn't have to be. It, right. The uh, tax assessor can't consider the square footage for assessing your property tax value. That's so right. that's so what a lot of these are. As far as functionality goes, I think it's good. But as far as like adding to your property value, no. If there's no foundation, you're not. That's not going to fly. But I will say though, another it's crafty note, though. I the uh, the uh, architectural design elements of some of these little mobile shed deals is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of really innovative architecture that's come out, uh, just mostly from like uh, mostly from Europe, frankly. Mm-hmm. And I if you go back just. Just the simple fact that essentially the housing migration trends are pushing people further and further away from the central, you know, the big cities and whatnot Mm -hmm. and connectivity. Like I was having a conversation. um, This is something we've talked about in our podcast a million times. Now, it seems like everywhere I turn, people are talking about this. But the Elon Musk, here we go, talking about Mm -hmm. Elon Musk again, Mm -hmm. is that, you know, the satellite Starlink that he's launching, that he, you know, bought into that company and they're Mm -hmm. covering the earth. Well, what I didn't know Mm -hmm. is like, so you and I are about to sign up for a pretty much the best internet connection 
connection we can get on port in Puerto Rico on this mm -hmm. island, right? And if I remember correctly, it's like 20 megabits up or 20 megabits. I don't remember. I'm not I'm not that technical. But I was explaining you know, about this Aeronet service to somebody, and he said, "Do you realize that Starlink is a hundred up and a hundred down?" Wow! And so, and our, they want to charge us. And that's worldwide too, right? Right. Well, they're going to start in the United States, yeah. and they want to they want to charge us five hundred dollars a month. And Elon's technology said it's mm -hmm. free. Basically, wow. he's going to try to provide it free, especially for the impoverished parts of planet Earth. That's amazing. Well, so expand on that just for a second, right? Mm -hmm. So, if you all of a sudden have um, essentially everyone on planet Earth getting access to the internet. Getting at a access, high speed, at a reliably high speed. high speed. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, what is that? What what changes? What doesn't change? Exactly. Everything changes. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, we're in the housing space. What does it do to housing? You can live anywhere, anytime, do anything you feel like. You can. And yeah. furthermore, you you know, you know, and I are fascinated with the Apple Glass, and mm -hmm. supposedly those are going to get announced this year. And if that actually is half of what I've been reading, that's going to revolutionize mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. Well, combine all of these factors. And, you know, I could see, like, remote places that you never even think of living getting civilized and developed yeah. and, you know, taken seriously. Well, I mean, you, so, and, I, you and I, when we were in, uh, living in Nevada, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to was mm -hmm. one of has the worst name ever, Death Valley. <laughs> but that was Bad so – I mean, don't go there in the summer. No. <laughs> we went there in the winter, and it was – it, it was like driving on the moon or something. It was yeah. really a very different Extraordinary. Landscape. Yeah. But now that was a national park, but yeah. there, there are tons of places. Sure. Like in, just staying in Nevada for a second, you've yeah. got, what, Vegas and you have Reno. and But there is a whole hell of a lot of Nevada yes, in between is. those two areas. Mm -hmm. So what if all of a sudden you could start dropping – these little houses on there yeah. you could start creating essentially you know it's amazing especially as it becomes more affordable i mean there, there's a lot of different options for well that. let's stay on that mm -hmm. so we were talking earlier about the fear of overpopulation because mm -hmm. of the, and that's one of the reasons you know mm -hmm. that people are wanting to explore mars amongst other places well what if the reality of it is, is the cure for overpopulation is essentially already in place with the things that we've been talking about on our podcast yeah. on sunday Sure. You know, increased connectivity, um, essentially the expectation for essentially not having to be uh, you know, tied to a physical location for sure. work anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, you call it whatever you want to. Mm -hmm. All these technologies yeah. combined with, you know, the people accepting, like you went through a long, and we talked about on this podcast, you were struggling with the idea of Zoe being homeschooled. You thought somehow that was less than, now you're kind of moving past it. Yeah, well, as as it got better, you know, I right. think everybody would, would agree that the first month or two of the online school was kind of a mess. But who knew who, you know, and so, yeah, I think I could see that. And, you know, you talk about overpopulation and I, I, you know, I think all of that is probably a real thing until I, I always have the same feeling when we're flying someplace. Let's talk about that for a second. We fly, <clears throat> like you fly into Las Vegas and it's like right. all congested in one little But hill. this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I'm not sure if the overpopulation thing is relevant with the advent of this That's, type of technology. Yeah. Because if you now can like populate... The, with spread you know, people out right exactly yeah. and and now that societally and culturally that's going to be something that people are okay with because the sure. technology and how covid changed expectations mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're not necessarily dealing with these densely populated right. or overpopulated areas mm -hmm. but i'll tell you something else was interesting what? i came across mm -hmm. so everyone is basically banking on um you know ice cars coming to an end right internal combustion engines mm -hmm. and the smart money seems to be on uh, electric propulsion right mm -hmm. Uh, and then hydrogen also. So are either one of those things really, like, how would it actually happen where people 
all of a sudden got rid of their ice cars, you know, gas cars, diesels, and all the rest of it, and then replaced them with electric. Think about what would have to happen. It's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. That that could take. I mean, the government in certain countries are trying to be, you know. Well, draconian too. about it, right, and making it so that, like in England, you know, London, you can't go in if, you know, you charge all kinds of extra taxes if you're not driving an EV. And different countries have made it, like California, for example, are making it so they're going to outlaw uh, internally combustion engines. And they're, you know, this they're all placing their bets on, and let's just say for the sake of not politicizing anything that Julie and I ever do, because we don't, let's just say it's for sound reasons with regards to, you know, the economy or the well i don't i said economy subconsciously but the environment but it really is economically driven too okay now here's what happened uh-huh. porsche uh, uh bought into a company that makes alternative fuel mm-hmm. for that will work in, intus- in internal combustion engines that the output in other words the exhaust is water hydrogen basically mm. so you have a technology that's proven that can be pumped through the existing uh, gas pumps and, oh, and the existing cars, mm-hmm. and there's no downside. Like if you have a, a, meth, a highly, is it methanol? Is it, What's corn? What do they put in gas? And like, ethanol? Ethanol, yeah, yeah, thank you. Not methanol. Methanol is what comes out of the back of a pig. So, <laughs> it's <laughs> methane, but yes, close yeah, enough. Farts, basically. Frenchy stuff. French right, exactly. Stuff. Right. So ethanol, right. So the ethanol is made from uh, corn, but the problem is, is that your like your ethanol can screw up an internal combustion engine, right? Basically, it causes it not to work as efficiently, and but also it also it screws up the insides of the engine. Um, I'm a car nerd, so I know these stupid things. But what this new alternative fuel does is it doesn't have any of the side effects of ethanol, and there the exhaust uh, vapor in essence has no negative ramifications to the environment, and it can run in uh, cars that are on the road, and it can actually basically r- use the existing. Um, systems that are in place with all the gas stations and everything yeah. else and the refineries Better. and whatnot. Well, because whenever people get going on the whole electric car thing and having to convert, my thought is always, okay, if, if your motivation is environmental, what's going to happen to all the gas-powered cars? Are we just going to have a big recycling bin for that? And where are those going to deteriorate? But, but, you're saying, but what you're saying is right. that the, the way well, Porsche's not me, got to Porsche. Figure, but but <laughs> yeah. they figured out a way to not have to do that and to use the existing right. uh, infrastructure. And they originally, so. basically, their PR anyway was saying they're trying to make it so that people with classic Porsches can keep their cars on the road and they're going to be able to supply <laughs> fuel and whatever. Well, but really what they're trying cool. to do is fly under the radar of the people that were you know, going to the – the, the church of electric vehicles and now they're now essentially what the Porsche has done with this other company is they're now introducing this fuel and essentially they want to manufacture it I guess that's the uh, essentially that's the next big hurdles they want to be able to make this fuel because right now it's more expensive per gallon mm-hmm. than just dinosaur juice right. so they want to make this stuff uh, so they can obviously be competitive with normal fuel costs. But when that happens, okay, mm-hmm. let's just say within the five years or less that happens, mm-hmm. you're going to go to your local gas station here in Puerto Rico. Hopefully they have gas. Sometimes they don't. Like, <laughs> this is what true. would you say, 50% of the time? Yeah, maybe th- 30% of the time. Julie was pumping gas. She's got a Range Rover. And the guy from the gas station comes out and says to her, she doesn't want to put that stuff in her car. Because basically the gas that she was about to pump was evidently the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. <laughs> and when it's at the bottom of the barrel and, and, you know, the gas tank that's in the ground that provides the pumps, you're just basically pumping garbage that's, you know, floated yeah. to the bottom. Anyway, that's a side story. Well, I told him, uh, you know, my car could eat junk food now and then. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, but that but, was nice that, it, you know, yeah. it does happen though. But seriously, with regards to this alternative yeah. fuel, so if all of a sudden – that no, it's not even all of a sudden. If people start becoming aware of what we just talked about, mm-hmm. they're not necessarily going to think that they have no alternative 
but to, you know, buy an electric car. Mm -hmm. And so Porsche, here's the fascinating thing. Something like, I forget what percent of their sales, it was over 60% mm -hmm. of their cars are EVs, you know. Already. Already. Know electric vehicle. No, it's electric vehicles and hybrids. It's okay. both. So, but they're creating this concurrent technology mm -hmm. that will essentially make it so the EVs, now, could we have a world where we have both? both? Yeah, but isn't that fascinating? We do now. I mean, with yeah, the gas and the we electric. We do. So. Oh, sure. Yeah, very interesting, though. Another cool thing to watch. So what do you think? But honestly, if you had it, would you? I like you, it better. Yeah, I, me too. Yeah, I, would. I would. And you get to keep your classic cars, as they said. Um, well, the range anxiety thing is the ultimate. Uh, yes. That's the thing that I'm never And that's gonna, real. That's it is real. real. Especially when you live in Puerto Rico. Well, and even, even you know, people that spend two hours on the freeway in California in a traffic jam, they've got to be freaking out about that stuff. Well, now you take it back you know. to our prior story. We were talking about people living more remote places sure. where there probably are gas stations along the way mm -hmm. where they're not going to be But probably not EV. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so I want to go to the story about uh, there's... One about dinosaurs and one about Caligula, just to keep it weird. Caligula? Yes, really? this one oh, right here. This, this is very interesting. Oh, boy. She said very interesting. One. Well, to me, okay. Get ready for NerdFest. NerdFest okay. 2021, brought to you well, by Julie Harris. That's right. Go up to the headlines so I can... All right, it does look cool. Okay, so Caligula's gardens, long hidden beneath an Italian apartment building, go on view. The infamous Roman emperor's extravagant tastes included opulent marble and exotic animals. Look at how intricate this... That that's a marble floor. Yeah, from, that's but nuts. but scan down because I'm going to tell you how. Don't old you this think is. that's amazing? Okay, yeah. That's okay, so by the that. time of his assassination in 41 A.D., the Roman Emperor Caligula was infamous for his violent streak and extravagant amusements, including a huge compound featuring a bathhouse adorned with precious colored marble and space for exotic animals. Now, uh, now reports Franz Lids for New York Times the remains of his pleasure garden known as Horti Lamiani are set to go on public display beneath the streets of Rome. Italy's Ministry of Cultural Heritage, Cultural Activities, and Tourism plans to open the subterranean gallery dubbed the Nifinium Museum of Piazzo Vittorio this spring. Visitors will be able to see a section of the Imperial Garden complete with artifacts including a marble staircase and elaborate frescoes. Um, the ruins tell extraordinary stories starting with the animals um, it's not hard to imagine the animals, some caged and some running wild in this enchanted setting. Archaeologists began ex excavating in 2006, digging beneath the crumbling 19th century buildings. They found a wealth of jewelry, coins, and pottery, as well as seeds from imported Asian plants like citron and apricot, plus the bones of peacocks, lions, and bears. So this story goes on to talk about when they discover stuff like this, sometimes it changes the outlook of history on a figure like this. We'll talk about it. This is so, interesting. You got my, um, you piqued my interest, lady. <laughs> okay. You may, have, you may have won the story worse for today. All right. Per Philip Willen of the London Times, wealthy Roman Senator Lucius Aelius Lamia commissioned the construction of the estate's main house and gardens. He originally bequeathed the property to then-Emperor Tiberius. Caligula inherited it when he assumed power in 37 A.D., Okay, Sarah Lorenzi tells the Times that the site contains some of the class, some of classical Rome's most remarkable out, uh, artifacts, including rooms in which marble surfaces were inlaid with carved pieces of different colors. The walls were really painted in marble. Caligula, originally known as Gaius Julius Caesar Germanicus, was born in 12 AD. His father was the famous Roman general Germanicus. Troops at the army post where the young Gaius grew up gave him the nickname Caligula, which meant the little boot, a reference to the child-sized military sandal boots he wore, according to History.com. Declared emperor at age 24, Caligula started suffering from a severe illness just seven months into his reign. 
Some observers and historians say the bout of ill health contributed to erratic and cruel behavior. In 38 AD, he executed Navius Sutorius Macro. How are you getting all these names right? That's all language thing. Oh, my god! Prefect of the Praetorian Guard who had helped him become emperor. That's according to Encyclopedia Britannica. But he was, uh, Caligula was known for extravagant spending, including the construction of a two-mile-long floating bridge. He's said to have forced senators to run for miles in front of his chariot and carried on affairs with his allies' wives. It's worth noting, however, that much of what modern scholars know about the emperor was written by historians who disliked him and may have distorted the record. As researchers at Encyclopedia Britannica point out, contrary to a popular story, Caligula probably never intended to appoint his pampered horse in, in Cytidus as consul. In 41, the revered emperor was stabbed to death in a conspiracy organized by members of the Praetorian Guard, the Senate, and the Equestrian Order. Uh, so, you know, it goes on to say the Roman historian claimed that Caligula's ghost remained behind to haunt the gardens. Still, they remained in use until uh, 193, in, sorry, until 235 AD. By the 4th century, the gardens were abandoned and were not discovered until 1874. That's insane. Isn't that crazy? So I, I kind of I follow stories that are related to... Today, the property belongs to pension management company... Uh, and Pam. And Pam, which paid $3.5 million arc, uh, for, for the, the Arctic. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. you go. But I love I love these stories of, um, you know, they're excavating something. And mostly this happens in Europe, but they, they find all kinds of well, interesting stuff. And I want to go to the dinosaur story, too, because that's really amazing. But let's not skip off that, because a lot of these yeah. guys haven't traveled to Europe. Yeah. You know, when you're in um, like England, to use that as an example, mm-hmm. and you're, you bought a nice little house in a nice little village in a nice <laughs> little English countryside... And you're digging, you know, a hole to plant your whatever you're planting, your tea and crumpets or whatever. Mm-hmm. I know you don't plant tea and crumpets. I'm just trying to make you laugh, listeners. And the uh, you discover, and it's not unusual for you to discover, that underneath your property is the remains of another house. It's not you guys think that they yeah. dig up graveyards. They don't. Europe, largely, Italy in particular, was built on top of civilization. So when you go, like I remember the first time Julie and I went to, was it Rome? Where we were I think it was Rome where you can most uh, you can appreciate see, this. Right. You can actually walk past and you can, I don't know, guys, imagine a uh, layer cake, okay? Mm-hmm. And so imagine, you know, looking at the layer, a massive layer cake and you kind of walk down some steps and you can see history right in front of you. It's amazing. And, and, and like you'll see this bottom area of this layer cake and maybe that that was civilization for you know, who knows how many years, and then the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one. Mm-hmm. It was extraordinary because what they do in Europe is they just will. I they mean, build on top of. They build on top of. They're not like, because again, land scarcity, especially in like Rome. Well, there's another reason for this too, is because so much of their architecture was built out of marble. Yeah. That's kind of hard to recycle. It's right. kind of hard to move. So you just go on top of. And, and the other weird thing when we we're in Italy, I, you know, it wasn't unusual for you to be walking past a building. There's a lawn out there and there's like a giant foot from some ancient statue. And it was just like the, the sandal. Right. <laughs> you know, and nobody had ever moved it. Nope. It's just amazing. So I, I thought lot, the Caligula thing was. And a lot of cool. times those towns were buried over because they had disease or there was other yes. things that happened. Um, so, you know, again. They find a lot of. Uh, Roman soldier uh, graveyard type of things. Where, right. Like they all died in that battle and, you know, were just buried until excavated. Graveyards are understandable to discover because especially if they're yeah. from, you know, but the thing that is fascinating and how routinely is, well, not, I mean, not so much maybe in the last 20 years, but certainly prior to that, how they are on a regular basis. We're discovering, uh, you know, this like this, well, for this example. Well, this architecture, I, I mean, I've 
try to follow stuff where it was uh, some kind of historical, you know, I love the architecture where they, I mean, they found a staircase. They found an entire room. It's pretty amazing. Well, when you and I were growing up in Ohio, there were Indian burial grounds. Yeah. And they still don't know why those were nope. formed. And there were only, there are essentially those types of burial grounds. They look like they the could. The serpent mounds. Right, the serpent mounds and things like that. Yeah. You guys should Google that. It's really fascinating. It's very fascinating. And they're massive. You can, you know, they're seen most mostly from space. But there's this, what is it, through Ohio, Southern Ohio, isn't it? I think it's Southern. I have to look it up to be sure. And right yeah. where we grew up. Do you remember how yeah. when you were in elementary school, they took you on a yes. field day? Was where was that? That was like in Clintonville or no, not, it was like out in Dublin or something. Yeah, I can't remember. There was this big, huge, it was, a, it looked like a massive, you know, pyramid where all the edges have been worn down. And it went back to, they don't even know what Indians, um, Native Americans uh, built it. They have no idea. And the belief is that the sort of the modern, uh, for example, in Ohio, what were the dominant tribes there? Do you remember? Kiowa was one of them. Yeah, that's um, true. Well, whatever they were, yeah. that the tribes discovered the mounds themselves and that the tribes that we will, we associate with being Native Americans didn't make the mounds. The mounds were made before they were they there. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Like they didn't know what it was either, probably. Exactly. And they were, for, yeah. we were taught that those things were um, burial grounds, mm-hmm. that there were bodies and whatnot of you know mm-hmm. your great priest from whoever, whoever. Yeah. but they since had done, and they, do you remember for a long time, they weren't allowed to actually do any sort mm-hmm. of, you know, but then they have, they have gone in there and they have, ex, what, ex, how would you? I don't know whether you. They have, and they yeah, have discovered nothing. Ar- yeah, they I know, just, so they're just kind of like sculpted earth, essentially. Yeah. So, okay, so when I say, for our next story, when I say, imagine a uh, dinosaur, don't you, I mean, yes, we have cartoon dinosaurs and stuff like that, but have you ever seen one in a museum that wasn't just bones? This is amazing. I can't even this believe what I'm seeing. Unbelievable. You, you definitely beat me today. <laughs> I mean, this damn okay, thing's go got hair headline. on it. Yes. It has a beard. Okay, so recently discovered dinosaur mummy is so well-preserved, it has the skin and guts attached. And if you see a picture of this thing, it's incredible. Okay, so let me read a little bit about this. Uh, Scientists are hailing it as the best-preserved dinosaur specimen ever discovered. That's why you can't see its bones, because they remain covered by intact skin and armor. And I looked at this for like a solid five minutes thinking like, Part of me didn't really, it's not that I, I doubt that dinosaurs existed, but until you see something like this, it, it puts a whole other perspective on it, right? Yeah, like, I'll tell you what the perspective is for what I'm saying. Run, run, run like hell. Yeah, run, exactly. <laughs> okay, so found uh, accidentally by miners in Canada, this fossilized nodosaur is more than 110 million years old, yet patterns are still visible on the skin. So you guys can imagine kind of like a ginormous crocodile sort of look. Uh, According to the Royal Tyrell Museum of Paleontology in Alberta, Canada, which recently unveiled the find, the dinosaur is so well-preserved that instead of a fossil, we could safely call it a dinosaur mummy. You guys got to Google this story. I'll give you keywords. Uh, Recently discovered dinosaur mummy. Just Google those keywords. You've got to see these pictures. Yes. Do this this on your phone right now while Julie's reading this to you because you will not believe it. It doesn't even look real like Julie said. The researchers examining the find were astounded at its nearly unprecedented level of preservation. The creature's skin, armor, and even some of its guts were intact, something they'd never seen before. Quote, you don't need to use much imagination to reconstruct it. If you just squint your eyes a bit, you could almost believe it was sleeping. That's how good this, the discovery is. Previously, only nodosaur skeletons have been discovered, which looked like this. You know, you guys will see it when you look it up. This dinosaur was built like a tank, a member of a newly discovered species called a nodosaur, nod, nodosaur perhaps. It was an enormous four-legged herbivore 
Protected by a spiky plated armor, it weighed about 3,000 pounds. To give you an idea of how intact the mummified nautosaur is, it still weighs 2,500 pounds. Although how the dinosaur mummy could remain so intact for so long remains somewhat of a mystery, researchers suggest that the nautosaur might have been swept away by a flooded river and carried out to sea where it eventually sank to the ocean floor. As millions of years passed, hmm. minerals could have settled on the dinosaur's armor and skin and might help explain why the creature was preserved in such a lifelike form. Um, they've named it uh, Borealopeta Mark Michelli in honor of the Royal Tyrell Museum technician Mark Mitchell, who spent over 7,000 hours carefully unearthing the fossil from its rocky grave. But how lifelike is the specimen really? Well, apparently the preservation was so good that researchers was able to tell the dinosaur's skin color by using mass spectrometry techniques to detect the actual pigments. This way they found out the nautosaur's coloring was a dark reddish brown on top of the body and lighter on the underside. Since this dinosaur was an herbivore, its skin color must have played a role in protecting it from the enormous carnivores present at the time. And the fact that we're talking about a massive, heavily armored dinosaur illustrates just how dangerous the predators would have been. Let's stop for a second. So this damn thing is an herbivore. This eats plants, and it looks like this? It's to protect it from what was bigger than it. Oh, my God. Right? I mean, that's like a prehistoric cow, basically. Seriously. Only, I mean, even more, 3,000 pounds and... Yeah, but look at this thing. It's spiked. It I is. wouldn't mess with it. I would no. Although we have seen some iguanas that maybe would give a run for its money yeah, here. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just like I, I've never, you know, you've seen renderings and drawings and you know stuff in in science books, but this is the real deal. So just amazing. Um, the dinosaur mummy is unique that it was preserved in three dimensions with the original shape of the animal retained. So this wasn't like you know if you imagine the typical fossil that's flattened it, in a rock. The dude said it right. And it, it looks three like dimensions. it looks like you're looking at something that's really ugly and really scary taking a nap. Yeah. In essence it's it like has very Game of Thrones looking. It kinda of reminds me of those of dragons. dragons, yeah. Exactly. Well it is that is exactly what it looks like actually. Yeah. It you know we'll it have to take ma- so how do they know it's not a dragon? I don't know. Right. It's a dragon. Maybe it doesn't have wings. All right, so let's see if we got anything any other stories to share with these guys. I uh, thought those I had were some, some of my best friends. Uh, I won't read that one. Here's a story. I'll just scan some of the other headlines I pulled out. Um oh, let's see. You like that one. We talked about Oh, okay. here's a, here's an interesting. I'll just read the okay. headline. Bill Gates becomes America's largest farmland owner. That was kind of fascinating. Wow. So he's bought more farmland. Hmm. It is, you know, that's kind of fascinating over time. Um land itself, raw land has been one of the greatest uh, mm-hmm. places to retain wealth. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if listeners, you ever thought about this. Like Julie and I were scanning through the MLS and looking around uh, Tennessee and North Carolina because we're fascinated with that area of the country. And we came across, or I came across a property that was 700 acres. And I sent it to Julie. And of course, her first question was, what the hell do we do with 700 <laughs> acres? And But here's the thing. When you own a ton of acreage, let's say the acreage ends up costing you, I'm just going to pick out an arbitrary number, $500 an acre, right? It's not unusual for land to uh, inflate by even $100 an acre. It's not, no big deal. No one's going to blink. It went from 500 an acre to you know, 600 an acre, or it goes from 1,000 to 1,100. Nobody cares, right? But if you have enough acreage, you're making money pretty much, you know, you definitely are making money from the inflation, the appreciation of the land. So when you see somebody like Bill Gates, who owns inevitably, I'm guessing, tens of millions of acres, it's an easy move for him because the, he, he has a monopoly on some of this farmland. And, uh, you know, you want to go buy farmland, and it turns out Bill Gates owns it. Well, um, he knows 
he owns all the adjacent land, all the surrounding land. He is the comp. And if he yeah. decides that all of his land is worth twice as much as what it was worth before and you want to buy farmland, what are you going to do? And so what does someone like Bill, Bill Gates do? And this is what's done had been happened historically going all the way back to feudal times and all the rest of it is they don't ever sell it. They lease it. And this is the kind of an interesting little thing that's happening right now. You have these sort of modern American oligarchs that are starting to gobble up the very things that people need to make food. And, but, you know, before him, um, Ranchland, I mm-hmm. think he's still the largest uh, shareholder or owner of it mm-hmm. is Ted Turner. Yeah. But for a long time, mm-hmm. the large – while we were growing up, the single uh, – the person who owned the most residential real estate in the world was the queen – Yes, and I believe the monarchy still owns a ton. A ton, I know a a lot of um, downtown London is still monarch-owned. Yeah, well, so... Down to the point where they have to use a specific color of white to paint it, which also happens to be owned... That paint is also owned by royalty, I believe, or that company is. We went on a tour in London, this is a long time ago, and you do... You know, when you're in downtown London, you pass... Just miles and miles and miles of these, you know, white townhomes. They're not really white. They're a little off-white. And that, what Julie just said, they're, mm-hmm. you don't own them. They're owned by the queen, in essence. And she also owns the only uh, uh, company that makes the paint that's the only accepted paint color for on the buildings. And so, you know, that's called mm-hmm. making money coming and going. Yeah. Still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still. Yeah. Uh, that is kind of fascinating. But the biggest uh, owner of residential property in the world now is BlackRock. Oh, that makes Hedge sense. Hedge yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to end with this story, I think. I thought you'd kind of find this one fascinating. Um, <laughs> the title is, a, uh, a Big Mistake Triggered the 50-Year-Old Gates of Hell Blaze. Have you ever heard this one before? I haven't. Oh, good. I finally found one you that did. you had good. read. Yes. Okay, this is the first time I've read this, so good. it might be a little clunky. Uh, quote, you're only human is a phrase used to excuse all manner of sins, but some human errors carry greater, longer-lasting consequences than others. In the 70s, one such miscalculation tested the weight-bearing capacity of an oil mine, which later turned out to be a large pocket of natural gas. Oops. Yeah. Having put an immense rig on top of this pocket, the engineers scarpered as a huge crater filled with natural gas formed. Fearful of how the gas might affect neighboring wildlife and communities, a quick fix was settled on. This was to light a fire that would burn off the gas in a matter of weeks. There's no way a fire... 50 is, years on. There's no way a fire is going to adversely affect neighboring uh, know, communities and wildlife. No. That's how different people are in the 70s. Gosh. They're probably standing around thinking about a way to take care of the problem of the excess gas while you know, smoking their cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. you know? Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, you know what? Let's just light a fire. Oh, my gosh. Okay. The story <laughs> begins in the heart of Turkmenistan's Karakum Desert, which was part of the Soviet Union back in 1971. I guarantee you we have listeners there. I, we think we do. The Soviets were in pursuit of oil fields, and having detected what they believed to be a bountiful source in the desert, they mounted a rigging station, including a sizable and heavy drill. Once the drilling began, it became quickly apparent that they had misjudged the nature of the beast. Instead of drilling into oil, they had set up a hefty operation above an enormous pocket of natural gas. The rig soon collapsed, creating an enormous hole, which is known as the Darvaza Crater. Darvaza was 230 feet across and 66 feet deep, and its collapse led to the domino effect that saw craters collapsing across the landscape. With each new crater came more natural gas, which is mostly made up of methane. This presented a big problem, as methane has an unfortunate habit of soaking up all the available oxygen in the air. Fearing for the lives of local communities and wildlife, the scientists did what so many have done when faced with the problem and tried setting it on fire. <laughs> was that the old school plugging and replugging? Like I said, man, that was the way uh, you did it. There was a method to the madness. 
as it was expected that burning off the natural gas would just take a few weeks. And then the air quality of the Karakum Desert would be, continue as normal. Herein lay the next folly, as it was revealed that this was a gross miscalculation and the flames continue to this day. The flames haven't stopped burning since they were first lit a half century ago, and scientists still aren't sure how long they'll continue to burn. Popularly known as the Gates of Hell, the Darvaza Crater and its flaming neighbors attract hundreds of tourists like moths to a literal flame. I have no that idea. That was good writing. Sure like it was, that. but yeah. I have no idea why you'd want to go see I that. I was thinking as I read that, that's not on my bucket list. I mean, look that, at the that. The picture's enough for me. Yeah, well, look at this. This is a YouTube video. Check uh -huh. this out. We're going to play this video, and we'll tell you guys what we're seeing. So it's a, a video of a drone flying over what looks like a, you know. A crater, a, really. A crater, yeah. And you're seeing inside this crater, it looks oh like it's gosh. on the surface of a different planet. But you're expect you're seeing, and there, look, there's a dude standing there. Looking down the crater. Not a very smart dude, I right. think. Right, no. And it's just this crater that's completely oh full gosh. of fire. And that's at night. Isn't that incredible? That's just crazy looking. And yeah, so, that was kind of an oops, wasn't but it? But just think about it. That, that con there, there's a constant stream of fuel that's going to keep that uh, crater lit forever, you know, because it's coming from the earth. You'd think and that somebody figured out would figure out how to harness that as energy for something? Because it's obviously self-sustaining. Well, yeah, but they're definitely someone, someone's harvesting it for the sake of basically selling people into going and seeing well, that, a big crater full of fire. That's how they're harvesting it. Okay, let's end the let's. This is another little story. We all have gotten through a lot of stories. This is our record for. But I, I guess I'm still feeling competitive with you for stories because <laughs> okay. you definitely kissed, kicked my ass this week. All right, but this is a this is kind of a fascinating one. It's this a great is story. this is about. You think this is a great story? I, well, I mean, it goes to our house. We can round the bend with... Oh, I see. Is that what we're doing? Okay, good. Yeah. Rich Canadians are flying to Florida in private jets to get vaccinated. Boy, wow. is that ever a salacious... Totally salacious. ...class, uh, you know, warfare-type yeah. titles. And in the... This is from Vice. And in the... Um, you know, in the, Im the image that they're showing at the article, it's, of course, of an inside of a private jet. Bastards. <laughs> Those bastard Canadians in their private jets trying to get vaccinated for COVID. Brother. Rich Canadian snowbirds, people who evade cold winters by living part-time <gasps> in warmer climates. They're evading cold winters oh, evading. in their private jets. Yeah. Are flying to Florida to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Some even, some even chartering private jets as Canada's vaccine campaign continues its slow and confusing rollout. In Florida, everyone over the age of 65, including people without U.S. citizenship, are able to schedule vaccine appointments at no cost. Vaccine demand is so high in Florida that it's difficult to secure a spot. CTV News spoke with a couple who paid to get on a private flight, which can cost 2500 to 4000 Why are we talking about the stupid planes? I know. I know. Yeah, I take it back. I don't like this story no, but it, because of how it's written. But yeah. instead of waiting here in Canada for God knows how long, I can go down to Florida and get vaccinated, 65-year-old Ontarian uh, said to the Post. Lerner and his wife, also 65, are considering traveling to their gated to their gated community. Anyway, so let, let's stop reading it. So this, this is the problem. So this yeah, is some politicizing. I, I, I was looking forward to it being about, you know, somebody being um, entrepreneurial, but I didn't no, read far enough the, to see how political it was. Exactly. But isn't that gross how that just slipped, they slipped that garbage in? You know, and pe I don't know. I think sometimes people read that, they are just absorbing the subconscious. The, right. They're, they're being manipulated into thinking yeah. that somehow... Oh, look, here's the thing. If you're living, if you're 65 years old and you're in Canada and you're worried about getting the coronavirus and you might have, uh, you know, uh, health reasons to, that that is a real concern and you can get it a hell of a lot faster in Florida than you then can in Canada. Don't you think you Canadians. should leave, get the hell out no matter how you're going to get there? Yeah. How is that a thing that people don't want to really talk about? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. I know. Was this your story? Um, yes, that was a version of your story. 
Oh, well, we better not go back to the UFOs because, no. you know. I, I think my favorite uh, story, you know, I look for, like, what's the real theme? I, th- I liked your mistake of the, uh, the, fire. Know, the the fiery crater and how some mistakes live on a lot more than others. But I thought that, that uh, the dinosaur thing was just, like, I can't stop looking at that thing. I want to get some videos, and I thought that was pretty and fascinating. And scare Zoe with it? Yeah, I mean, it's so, <laughs> I don't know, it's crazy. So, there we have it. And we didn't warn you, anybody who's made it to the end of the podcast with us. <laughs> it's Sunday. <laughs> <Has> bailed. <laughs> we, we just do the, on Sunday, so it's, it's mostly variety. for ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Variety show. Well, there it is. So, guys, hopefully you're using some of this to expand your own thinking. And we're entertaining you and maybe keeping you company as you're going through, you know, doing yet another BPO or getting ready for another open house or whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll tell you something else, guys, I've been really, really fascinated with. And I really, this is, I, you know, I give you this suggestion you can hear because I'm stammering uh, with some apprehension but I strongly encourage all of you guys who have iPhones you guys should download the uh, Clubhouse app I've been playing around with this for maybe seven days and just sort of understanding how this technology could be something that was something to pay attention to and I'm and I was looking for reasons not to think it was that and I am convinced that it is and now what am I talking about this Clubhouse app and uh, some people – Clubhouse, unfortunately, there's more than one app called Clubhouse. But this one's got a picture of a guy with some really great hair that's holding a guitar. So when you're looking at the little favicon or avatar for the app, that's the one to look out for. It's called Clubhouse. It's only available on iPhones. It's still in beta, so you can't um, you know, get it. Uh, you have to be invited. But here's, the, here's what matters. You need to go to the App Store right now, and you need to download it and then set up a profile for yourself and get your name. Because what's happening is even if you don't have access to it, you're going to reserve your name. You desperately and definitely want to do that. Personally, so Julie and I were early users of Facebook. We were early users of, I mean, every possible technology, you know, we are, what, Twitter. We had a Twitter account and actually someone told me to set up a Twitter account and I set it up. I didn't even know what I was doing, you know. Mm -hmm. But these are all things that when these technologies come around the bend, there's something that like you never know whether it's going to be something worth investing in or not. And this clubhouse thing is like nothing I've ever seen before because what it is, it's a um, – I don't even know how to describe it. The visualization I'll give all of you is you're walking down a, a corridor, let's say, and in you know, you're essentially passing you know, doors. And each door is labeled with the topic that of the conversation that's happening inside that door. So you could open the door and you could walk in there and there would be a, I don't know, conversations going on. It could be five people. It could be 500 people. I've seen a couple of these rooms where there was like 1,000 people or 2,000 people. And they're, all, they're not all talking at once. There's moderators. There's, it, you know, they're, even the amateurist ones, frankly, I thought have been run pretty efficiently. So you'll have maybe four to six moderators and the moderators are having a conversation. Sometimes it's an organized presentation. Other times it's just a free-flowing conversation about whatever the topic is. And obviously I'm paying attention to the business and real estate uh, conversations. Um, and a lot of it's, you know, Mickey Mouse malarkey and people are saying a lot of the same things, you know, but that's normal, right? Uh, but what's fascinating, again, is then you can go and listen into these conversations. You can ascertain whether the people are worth listening to or not. But then the no- the number of people that some of these uh, you know rooms are accumulating in the audience just to listen to what they're you know bantering on about is extraordinary. And so from a marketer's perspective, which some of you guys will appreciate, what Clubhouse is able to do is able to not just – you can go there with two clicks once you've got access to the app, and you can set up a room, and you can start a conversation about anything. And then you can go invite other people 
people that you might not even know on Clubhouse to be moderators, like Grant Cardone. I've seen he's a moderator of a ton of these things, and people keep on asking him because he's got a whole bunch of people following him on Clubhouse. So when you know they, if Julie and I were to do one today on real estate investing or whatever. And we are invite Grant Cardone. So he's now moderating this thing with us. So his 25,000 people or whatever then get invited and being uh, notified that Grant's doing a clubhouse on investing in real estate. And then those people, a lot of those people then start following us. And now if you have, you know, six Grant Cardones that you're going in, God, that's a scary thought. But if you had six Grant Cardones, they were all moderating with you. Um, and they have big audiences as well. And then you're starting a topic and all these other moderators are there. All their people are going to be invited to go. And then a lot of them are going to show up. Now you've got this audience that could be hundreds, if not thousands of people to talk about whatever the hell you want to talk about. Now, from a marketing perspective, that's extraordinary. I've not seen anything like this before. Um, and it's not here. It's interesting. The rules they've set in place. It's audio only. There are no visuals. Right? It's not like Instagram where you can throw up pictures and whatnot. So it's not Instagram. It's not textual like virtually everything else has been. It's audio only. And once the conversation is over, it's not recorded. Now, I, I don't know what prevents you from recording it externally, but I think it's a violation of their terms of service. But once the conversation is over, the conversation is gone. So you listen to it live and there are no replays. Just like as if you were walking down that corridor and you're going from one room to the next and you know, you want to listen to a little bit of this and then you get bored of that conversation, you go and listen to another one. And if you're in the audience and you've got a question or you want to contribute something, you raise your hand and then maybe the moderators you know, choose to have you go up on stage and you ask your question or add to whatever they were saying, that kind of thing. And some of the things, I, I'll, I'll tell you what I find um, fascinating is that the nature of how people are communicating and relating to each other and is uh, for me, it's incredibly encouraging, especially look, entrepreneurs, whether you're no matter what kind of business you're in, you're all kind of breathing the same rare air. You're a little bit nuts, right? I mean, you have to be. And so when you and that's what Clubhouse seems to be attracting. A majority of them are sort of business users or people that are wanting to own businesses and tons of real estate people, too. Um, but when you're in a uh, conversation, like I keep on getting invited to moderate different things about startups and just things that, you know, I could talk about, but they're not necessarily my wheelhouse. Um, but when you're in these rooms listening to these people, they're so collaborative and there's no, like nobody, I have not stumbled across one where anybody was being political. I have not stumbled across one where anyone, where they're just complete strangers that are being uh, collaborative, talking about really obtuse topics as relates to you know the topics I'm interested in, I've not experienced something like that, especially in a social networking you know media type format where people seem to always be looking for little ways to jab and trigger each other. So this Clubhouse app, I don't know what it's going to evolve into, but I was um, telling our private coaching clients about it last week. And from a agent's perspective, if I put my agent hat back on again, mm -hmm. and like I'm thinking about how can I go and uh, market or how can I start like uh, communicating or using this app to communicate with people in my community for the sake of, you know, mm -hmm. um, giving them real estate information and uh, maybe the law of reciprocity will spin around and they'll want to do business with me, right? Build mm -hmm. relationships with them. Mm -hmm. And so if I wanted to do that in the past, you're going to have to do direct mail. You're well, going to have to do things like that. Money you're going to have to spend money, right? Or you're going to start a podcast. Right. And podcasting is great too, obviously. But for us, you know, the podcasting, you're not going to have – how many people are actually – like, what's the available audience for what you're going to talk about? So Julie and I's available audience, if we expand outside the United States, is, you know, millions of people, right? Because there's millions of real estate people across planet Earth. That's our available audience. But in the scheme of things, that's tiny. 
you know, so if you have like, for example, with podcasting, you have uh, whatever your topic is, that immediately is going to limit who's going to listen to you. And then there's, frankly, there's a number of people that are actually going to take the time to listen to a podcast. Everyone talks about podcasts, but if you look at the, um, you know, how many people are actually listening to podcasts on a regular basis, it's tiny. But the, and I, I know why, because you have to download it. You're, it's, you know, essentially a, you're listening to usually a conversation between two or four people or whatever. But in this Clubhouse app, because of the fact that it's so much more interactive and because there's conversations It's much more collaborative. Yes, it's interesting. And I think that's, it's for me, I don't, I mean, I can see from a lead generation perspective, Mm -hmm. I can see how it's a home run. Um, But if I were selling real estate, if you and I were still selling real estate in Albany, Ohio, for example, I absolutely would start a probably, you know, three times a week Mm -hmm. an informal conversation. I'll Mm -hmm. tell you what I talk about. Mm -hmm. New listings. Yeah. That's all I talk about. I talk about new Especially listings and what's sold. How hot would that be? Yeah, I just talk. That's all I would do. Yep. And I'd let everybody know that we're on this Clubhouse app. But Clubhouse, what it does is when you're writing your profile, you put in what you're interested, all the normal profile things, and then it will, it's little AI, you know, search bots will then say, well, Julie said she's interested in French Bulldogs, New Albany Country Club, blah, 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 blah. And so every time... Um, it'll find me. You it'll, don't have to find it, me. That's what I'm trying to say. And you don't have to, like, buy me as a potential lead or no. as a potential listener. Right. It's very. They're doing uh, it for free. All you have to do is the content. Right, they're creating audience awesome. for you. Yeah, they're going I think out. That's very cool. But so if you do this, just remember the little hacks I've discovered so far. Number one is that you have to uh, set up a really good profile when you're on. Just look at Julie and I's because I've tw- I've tweaked it a few times. Ours is Tim and Julie Space Harris. So just go and find our app, our, our profile and copy it because the profile is what essentially the keywords you put on your profile is how they identify you to be uh, participate in other people's uh, rooms. Um, now, here's the other thing. When you ask um, uh, questions, you get some sort of elevated level of status inside the app, and they give you uh, more uh, attention, basically. But if you moderate something, if you're actually uh, – you start your own room, then that's the highest level of attrition – or uh, uh, what's the word? Sounds like attrition. Um. Not appreciation, but uh, <laughs> recognition. Whatever it is. It's not that Association. word. Association. Yeah, know. whatever. So, well, well you're, I think the point you're trying to make, first, make sure your profile rocks. Yeah. And that get, you've get, done some detail on it. Reserve your name. Reserve okay? your name. And then and participate, because the more right. you participate, the better it works. You get participation stickers, basically. Yes. And then if you're on there and you're talking about your local uh, real estate market and you're then participating in other people's uh rooms and maybe asked to moderate from time to time, then what happens is when you pop on there, the app seems to recognize the fact that you are a high impact user or influencer using the modern uh, terminology. And then they will then more proactively go out there and try to get more people to pay attention to whatever the heck you're talking about. That's truly badass. Yes. I mean, right now, like for our podcast, Mm -hmm. I have to expect people to discover it on one of the billions at Spotify, Mm -hmm. iTunes or whatever. We promote the podcast. People, you know, Word of mouth through the podcast. But really, at the end of the day, we're stuck with whatever iTunes decides to do mm-hmm. as far as like if iTunes will, you know, Tim and Julie had a bunch of downloads and then all of a sudden they're going to put us higher up on list and we'll get a whole bunch more downloads. And then two days later, we don't get a whole bunch more downloads. Or put, I mean, the whole podcasting thing is a closed system that's basically controlled by Apple. Yeah. And you're always basically going to, if you want to expand your podcasting listenership, at the end of the day, you have to spend money to get more people to want to listen to you. And if you expect just to do it organically, you're only going to get your audience to a certain size. Not true with how this technology seems to be evolved. And I find that incredibly interesting. Yeah. Talk so about high impact. But here's the disadvantage that a lot of these mm-hmm. guys are going to have. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of funny to think about. But being able to say something um, that is coherent, that delivers value, is a lost art. 
And a yeah. lot of people who've only learned how to talk in like little Twitter bursts, mm-hmm. right? Or, you know, they don't know how to disseminate information that's, that's right. going, that other people are going to put value on. So you're really going to have to yeah. read more, by the way. That's the hack for that. Mm-hmm. Or listen to this well, weird no, Sunday true. podcast. I mean, I've read an article that uh, colleges are starting to have classes in conversation yeah. because kids have grown up on, you know, snippets, essentially. Right. Yeah. And this so goes, this is good, though. But this goes back to another theory that you and I had two years ago. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what triggered this in my mind when I started thinking about this, is that everything seems to be going to audio. And, um, you know, I think it, I, it's safe to say that I think everything's going to move past uh, textual mm-hmm. uh, to audio. And you can see how that's going to work when you look at all these home devices like Siri and like uh, all these other things where you're going to speak to it and the thing's constantly listening to you, Yes. right? And and so if you think, okay, well, if that's the way it's truly going to be, like if I say, hey, Siri, you know, uh, turn the air conditioning up or hey, Siri, this, that, or the other thing. You guys know how to use it. You've seen it before. Well, that's being integrated into your car. That's being integrated into mm-hmm. your new Apple Glass. So everything's going to be through your voice. So also... Uh, text, as in SMS text, that's all going to move towards audio as well. So you are going to have a choice, obviously. Do you want to send an audio message, which you can do now, um, which very rarely do people do, or do you want to send, um, you know, an ordinary, you know, words-based textual message? I can see how there's going to be a neck, essentially a move towards people having to learn how to communicate through their voices and how that's going to give an advantage to the people that have invested in um, essentially being good wordsmiths. Yeah, well, you know. but you, I think you make an excellent point, which is read more. Yeah. And and it's funny because our articles today that we went through were from a lot of different resources, right? Yep. And look at the variety in how they were written. A couple of them were really well written and a couple of them were a little bit clunky and I can see maybe somebody went through to use some more, you know, salacious words. But right. But um, the more you read, the more you'll kind of filter through some of that and you'll gravitate towards, you know, certain resources that that are really working for your brain, I think. And if you're just reading the same stuff all the time, your yeah. brain, you actually stop reading the words. You just basically glaze over them. It's and you're like not a even, billboard that you you're not even really absorbing it. Yeah. Right. So if you are finding you're kind of attracted to the same sort of, you know, audio or whatever that you're consuming on a regular basis, you really do maybe need to, you know, Give yourself a break from all that and do what Julie and I are doing. Start looking for stories that are completely bizarre to you. When we set up Google Alerts, by the way, is how we find most of these. But start reading things that are completely contrary to your opinion. Start – look, avoid politics, guys, because that's just – let's just be honest. That's just – we all need a long, long period of no politics. Yeah. But other things that are going to like, well, why do you think the way you think? So what are the things that you absolutely know are true? And, and okay, write, write those things down. And let, let's assume that most of those things that you believe are true are true. But the one, why don't you challenge every single one of them? Why don't you go through every single thing that you think is true? And why don't you read the, you know, countervailing facts or opinions on that particular, you know, opinion that you hold dear? And just for no other reason than to, um, you know, reaffirm that your perspective on whatever that is, is, you know, based on modern facts. And I'm, again, we're not, this isn't politics. I'm just saying in life. I mean, maybe nutritionally you're thinking of a certain, you know, way of whatever, right? It just everything is fascinating, I think. And if you're constantly keeping your, your brain challenged and going in different directions, you know, I'll, this goes back to a podcast in my mind that we did a long time ago. Hmm. Um, the gal had been in a bad accident 
and she had to relearn how to write and walk and talk the whole thing. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. This is probably I don't know, a long damn time ago. Actually, mm-hmm. this was pre-podcast. This is back mm-hmm. when it was just a webinar that I did on Friday. And I remember one of the exercises that she said, now she was coaching people to how to mm-hmm. sort of get more brain elasticity, right? Which right. is what we're talking about. Uh-huh. And she was talking about, um, so like you can, uh, I forget it was, tread water one way, right? Mm-hmm. And she mm-hmm. said, try to tread water the Backwards. opposite way, yeah. right? And we had that little pool mm-hmm. when we lived in Texas. And I actually tried to do that. Yeah. And it is freaking hard. Yeah. Because you know how to, like I know how to tread water just like, you know, I'm showing Julie how I tread yeah. water. But if you try to do it backwards. Yeah. Right? It's really difficult. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like, wow, what the hell is that? It's lack of brain elasticity. Your brain is mm-hmm. sort of pre-programmed to do one thing one way. But then when you go back and you do it the other way, I mean, this might be, you know, made up. But I, I did, after I started doing that, you did it too. Mm-hmm. When we'd uh, swim, it was a lap pool, basically. And when we'd swim afterwards and you do these different exercises that she suggested, you do feel mentally a little bit more... Awake. Yeah. Isn't absolutely. that fascinating? Well, um, you know, with this whole homeschool thing, you read a lot of different things. And one of the things is if you supposedly, I think they've studied this because this came from Scholastic, supposedly if you, if your child reads even 10 minutes a day, just a little book, a, little, a chapter in a book, 10 minutes a day consistently, that for their entire life, they will be programmed to perform at a 90th percentile um you know, like basically in, in everything that they try to pursue, just just because they read consistently, that that's like a key thing. And they also say reading every day will keep Alzheimer's away and, you know, keep your, your you know, brain it's, flossed. It's all these practical reasons why you want mm-hmm. to read every day. But I think the real reason you need to keep your, your brain elastic isn't just the things we talked about. But it's also because you feel much more alive and connected mm-hmm. and you're much less likely to be easily manipulated. That's true. You're much less likely yeah. to fall prey to all these fear mongers that are everywhere in the mm-hmm. world right now. You're going to be able to always have... Well, because you have a different perspective. You'll have a much broader outlook and be less susceptible to, you know, tiny thinking. Well, like classic, the reason you went to college, and you and I are, you know, 50, so maybe it isn't this reason anymore. <laughs> but I remember very distinctly that, you know, the reason we were told you go to college when we were kids, and a lot of you guys are basically the same age as us, is because it's going to help you to think more dynamically about more topics. And when we mm-hmm. were in college, that definitely was true. Yeah, I mean, you, I depending on what right. path you pursued, I'm not sure if that's true anymore. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But, you know, fortunately, you have a lot more ways to educate yourself, whether you're in college or not internet. now, because back in our day, Pluto was still a planet and, you know, we didn't have the internet. Can't believe you said <laughs> and that. And the MLS wasn't online. But, you know, you can you can find all these resources. Now, that's that's mostly good, sometimes bad. Because Did you, you really just say back in our day when Pluto was a planet? It's true. You're going to have people... Right now, they're googling it right now. No, well, I know, but they're gonna they're gonna basically go after you now because they still believe Pluto's a planet oh, and it's I a know. thing. <laughs> you're, you're gonna get a hashtag. The, the Pluto preservation. You're society. definitely gonna get hashtag. It's <laughs> okay. Julie Harris that doesn't believe Pluto's a planet, not Tim Harris. Yeah. Should I get your opinion on flat Earth? No. That's for next Sunday. Next, definitely next <laughs> Sunday. So the challenge is on for new information for next Sunday. Yeah. So you guys share your wacky and yeah, bizarre you can stories. Yeah, send it to us. We love seeing. I have uh, coaching clients um, send stuff to us and chat all the time. So, you know, it's always interesting. The weirder, the better. That's really our challenge. Weird to all but of you. true. It has to be. You know, well, not true-ish. Made up. true. Trueish. Trueish. Yes. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't think anything we read to them today was true. It was, it was all truish. <laughs> truish, yes. <laughs> Good. All right. So you guys on, have on that note, we'll see you <laughs> next week. And remember, back to normal scheduled real estate coaching radio uh, content and programming tomorrow. Today, Sunday, is just our ability. It's Julie and I intentionally defrag from the previous week, and we have these types of conversations. We did this way before we started doing the Sunday podcast. We usually would go on long walks and whatnot. We just talk about different things because when you're forced to think about something that you don't normally force, or that you don't normally think about, what happens is you create more brain elasticity, but also maybe the things that you had labeled as problems you sort of solve because you're able to approach it with a different perspective mentally and emotionally even. So do consider this, guys, especially because this year is going to create, I think, and you know, we've talked about this a billion times in our podcast, go back and listen to past shows. We are definitely in the real estate industry. Um, we're going to see probably the greatest real estate boom of, I don't even know how long, guys, maybe ever. And all the things that right now, unless there's some dramatic changes in interest rates or, you know, all these other things, it's, it's at this point, demographics, interest rates, um, attitudes and mindsets about real estate, everything is creating winds at our back. Mm -hmm. We look for intentionally reasons to believe and not be optimistic about or look for any headwinds to the real estate markets. And we'll tell you guys. We tell you urgently. I looked today before the show through, you know, different real estate headlines and news. I, find I didn't find nothing negative. Yeah. And we other, don't, other than, you know, scarcity of listings, but yeah. but that's not the same as housing crash. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I've read, yeah. you know, someone asked my opinion on basically when there's going to be an influx of inventory, when there'll be more inventory. And the answer is probably not for a long damn time. And even when it comes, let's say new construction, all the new construction is going to be built using uh, inflated building supplies, which means new construction houses, if you want to, you know, essentially know where the price increases are going to be, it's going to be new construction because yeah. wood and everything else is going through the roof as far as inflation they're you know it's going inflating cost and that's going to do nothing but make resale houses go up in value as well that's the cycle we're in and at the same time you have millennials and you know all the you know generation z's and even our generation generation x and baby boomers and that's just in the united states yeah. now similar patterns are going on all over the planet earth and you know china and all these other things and so we everything on planet earth is supporting a robust housing market for at least the next three to five years so make sure you've got your head straight, you're doing the right things to put yourself in a position to help as many people as you possibly can and make as much money as you can because this is what it feels like to be in the right place at the right time. Now, do take the right actions. Do consider listening to our past podcast. Please do consider um, subscribing to our podcast on iTunes and give us a great five-star review, though I'm sure somebody right now is firing off a review saying, all they talk about is aliens. <laughs> you we guys, did warn you. you we did. This is Sunday. We're, this is our day off, so there it is. <laughs> you guys have a fantastic day. We'll talk to you on the show tomorrow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs> <laughs>